Years ago, I heard a story that I never got out of my head. It's the story of Onodo, a Japanese soldier in World War II uh, who became famous because he continued fighting in the jungle for decades after the war was over. You might think that he just didn't want to stop fighting and this was like a one-person crusade. Nope. He was following his commanding officer's last command and could not be convinced otherwise. The story goes that Onodo's commanding officer told his battalion that the war had intensified and he warned them that their enemies were deceitful and they might try to lure them out by promising peace, but that would be an ambush. So keep fighting. Don't stop fighting. Even if you're the last one standing, don't stop. And so Onodo did. He wouldn't stop fighting. His fel- after the war was over, uh, his, his, uh, his battalion returned home. And then later, the Japanese citizens realized that he was still out there. So they tried to convince him that the war was over. But he feared that they were spies. And he felt threatened by them. And then he would also threaten them in, in turn. They didn't come back, of course. So they, the town made recordings for him. And they, they, they dropped leaflets uh, and dropped them from planes, telling him that the war was over. And none of it convinced him. He thought it was just propaganda. It was ridiculous and somehow admirable. But it was a dilemma. I mean, how do you tell a soldier that a war is over when his final instruction was to fight to the end and don't ever believe anyone else? It had me wondering, how do you get someone to stop pursuing the hopes in their lives that they are deeply committed to pursuing and try to pursue something else instead. Now, I like to think that I'm normal or somewhat normal. And maybe you also are are somewhat normal too. And yeah, we're not lost in the jungle fighting a war that is no longer relevant, but is it possible that you might be pursuing a lesser life when you are being invited to live an even greater one? Now, I'm not talking about the greater life in the way that the world with, defines it with riches and fame and likes and clout. I'm talking about a greater life of meaning, of purpose, of redemption, of impact. I'm talking about the way of Jesus. Well, I want to tell you about that today. But first, I want to tell you about that time that Jesus did this amazing thing. And then he did a few things and everybody deserted him. Is that time that Jesus had gathered thousands of people and on the looks of it may have crashed and burned afterwards and barely had any disciples left. Barely. It's actually a really interesting story in, in the account of the Gospel of John. John chapter 6. Jesus has just fed the 5,000 in the first half of the chapter. It's an epic story. And if you understand this, it's it's a story of basically a significant population of people of that region coming to see Jesus, and they're there for so long listening to his teaching, and so he feeds them. And then he continues teaching. And then we're going to pick it up here in verse 25 of chapter 6. And it reads, When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And he doesn't answer the question. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate your loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. 
For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. The text says, when they found him. Who's they? Well, it's pretty much a sampling of everyone. Followers, skeptics, religious leaders who are kind of rivals and they're trying to get rid of Jesus. And a a bunch of folks just trying to figure out who Jesus is and what actually happened the day before. In previous weeks, we have mentioned the, the show, The Chosen, And the episode that features the feeding of the 5,000 is pretty fantastic. Among my favorite aspects of it is how it depicts the variety of different types of people who are gathered at the miraculous, miraculous feeding. Yes, the Pharisees show up, and there's also different postures of Pharisees. Some seemingly curious, others more hostile. But it also depicts various followers of God from, from various ideologies who are just Again, trying to make sense of Jesus' teaching of the kingdom of God. And as a reminder to us here, whenever we read or hear the term the kingdom of God, we should also interpret it as in the way of Jesus. Kingdom of God, the way of Jesus. Well, as you imagine these scenes, I want to remind and encourage you to do your best to, to picture it in its ancient Middle Eastern context. So no blondes, blue-eyed Jesus reading the Torah with an iPad, okay? The Chosen show does a good job of that. Uh, In fact, would you believe that one of our very own Grace Chapel friends was an extra on that episode of the feeding of the 5,000? Here's a picture of my dear friend Bassam and his daughter Chloe. Yeah, it's hard to see them because they they are actual Middle Easterners behind some of these blonde, blue-eyed faces. (laughs) Come on, casting. (laughs) But anyway, check out the episode to, to see the different types of people representing ideologies gathered there, uh, it really helps bring out the perspective that we want to be able to see in this this passage of Scripture. Let's move on to verse 28. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works of God that that he requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ancestors ate the men in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now, there's a lot going on in in this back and forth. You know, what do we have to do? They asked Jesus. And here he gives a very direct answer. Believe in the one who was sent. Well, what about showing us another sign, though? It's all about the signs. And as we look at the text... We, 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 we say, like, what, what more are they looking for? I mean, Jesus just fed 5,000 people yesterday. What, what do they want today? And just a, a quick pause as, as we break from the action and, and maybe just take some personal inventory for ourselves. What more are we looking for today? Are there signs that you are asking of God right now? One of the most important prayers you might search, you, you might have right now is to search your heart this Lent and ask, what am I really looking for? And what would it really take to answer that? I've been asking myself that a few times. I have loved ones that are fighting life-threatening diseases. I believe, I really do, I really believe. And as I pray, there's also this thought that I'm working out, Jesus, I'd I'd really, really believe if you healed my loved ones today. In full disclosure, it's my observation that over the years, 
that numerous times the Lord has answered these prayers exactly as we have hoped for. Miraculous healings, yeses to the requests, divine affirmations and exclamations. Still my heart, though, asks, but Lord, can I see another sign? I mean, it's been a while, right? I've been convicted by this part of my humanity this Lent. And that's a good thing. The conviction isn't asking such a human question, but rather my hesitation or my holding back of any faith that I might have. And I'm trying to be faithful. As we keep reading, notice Jesus doesn't say, I've already shown you some cool things. But instead, in his wisdom, he turns it theological and historical. And this is both metaphorical and literal. I mean, it's amazing because Jesus is amazing. Verse 32 says, Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, then always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of the one who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall not lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks at his Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up on that last day. Throughout this entire exchange, Jesus answers them directly as a son of God, and Jesus goes pretty big when he says, it's not Moses who gave you this bread from heaven, it's the Father. And some of them gathered are like, not Moses? Like, whoa, be careful when we talk about Moses. Moses is like the Michael Jordan of the Old Testament. Sorry, Boston friends. He's like the Larry Bird of their history. And Jesus just, you know, took their hero down a notch or two. But some of them are tracking. And so they say, okay, okay, give us, give us this bread. And Jesus says, I, this, this I am statement that we are featuring today, I am the bread of life. And whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Back to thinking with an ancient Middle Eastern lens. Bread in that world is life. Now, I know some of us today avoid bread, and it's not always what we want in our our modern diets, but in the ancient world, it was essential, like the source of life. And while we're on it, please don't picture Jesus holding up a piece of toast or or, or white bread. I mean, I, I I would say that Jesus isn't holding up a piece of French bread or Italian bread. Personally, I like to imagine that Jesus is holding up an ancient type of pita bread. But they can't deal with that. They don't want to really talk about pita bread because they only want to see him as a miracle worker, their personal problem solver. They want Jesus to be someone who helps them, not someone that they follow. And here Jesus is just breaking too many overriding, entrenched, guiding narratives for them. It's going against their programming. And so similar to the soldier in our opening story, they can't hear the truth of Jesus over this guiding narrative. 
that he is the pita bread of life. I'll take some liberties in, in summing up the rest of the passage here. But, but verse 41 tells us that, that they began to grumble about him because he said, I'm the bread that, that, that came down from heaven. And then Jesus tells them to stop grumbling and explains that no one can come to him except to him unless the Father who, who sent has drawn them. And he stresses the importance of faith and belief and over education and tradition. It's faith and belief that leads to eternal life. And Jesus tells them to stop grumbling, not because he's frustrated with them, but because you can't see the kingdom of God when you're grumbling. You can't see it. So he says, stop grumbling amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws them, and I will raise them up. And he continues and says, Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And it kind of just goes back and forth. Well, they're grumbling. They're frustrated. And at a certain point, like Jesus has kind of like lost his audience. And, and you might say, this is the worst sermon ever given in the Bible. I mean, the day before they had church, I mean, thousands of people f- were fed, people were worshiping, people at the edge of their hearts listening to the teachings of Jesus. Today, they're throwing up their hands in shock and disbelief. And their minds are trying but the truth that Jesus is giving them is just incompatible with what, with what they think that they know and what they think they want. And so they start leaving in waves. And from the text, we deduct that even seekers left. They're just saying, like, this is weird. The critics, they leave. I knew something was wrong with that guy. Even, Jesus, some, even some of Jesus' own disciples outside the original 12, but even his other disciples even they were leaving. And as you may be aware, there, there were several rings of disciples of Jesus. And, and John describes that many of them had left. I mean, are you getting this? Yesterday, Jesus had an audience of over 5,000 people. Today, now, he has 4,988. Sorry, he doesn't have them. 4,988 had left. Today, he has 11 and change. Maybe 12. We'll get to that in a minute. I mean, we got to ask, is, is this not the worst sermon ever? Now, I'm not saying that I'm this special, special preacher who has never given a bad sermon. I mean, I've seen people sleep through my sermon, walk out of my sermon, change the, the channel on my sermon, zone out on their phone and all of it. I've seen some of the same people who were sleeping, clap at the end, high five me in the, in the lobby. Preacher, the preacher life. But I've never, I've never given a sermon that collapsed an entire gathering of people. I've never given a sermon that, dis- that dissolved an entire audience of folks before. I've never given a sermon that extinguished a current or a potential church. I mean, if people show up next week to Grace Chapel, then in some way I've done better. Or have I? I was actually thinking about some of the worst sermons that, that, that I've preached over the years. And the one that came to mind was one that, that I preached in my early 20s at my, at my first church. And I, I wanted to use uh, the parable of the soils metaphor. And so I got like, you know, like all like these four pots and I had practiced it the night before and it, and it went great. But somehow 
when, when I gave the message, some of, the, uh, some of the, the plastic packaging broke. And so like the rocks and dirt spilled everywhere and they hit the pulpit and like it was a glass pulpit and I wasn't sure if it broke or not. And people were like looking and like just like the, the, the thing had just jumped the tracks. It was, it was just a mess. But as I got to thinking about that, I, I realized that's not really the worst one. I think our worst sermons are, are actually those stories that we tell with our lives. The ones that reveal our hypocrisy, our self-righteousness, our lack of love, our absence of faith. Those are my worst sermons. I invite you to consider the fact that they might be your worst messages too. Well, somehow this story actually gets worse. On hearing it, many of his disciples say, this is hard teaching. Who can accept it? And like I said before, they're leaving. And then he turns to his 12 and he says to them, you don't want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12 and Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. Ouch! I mean, we sort of had a good moment. And and Peter, you know, delivers this really great line, like, You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. And then Jesus kind of says rhetorically, yeah, but one of you is a devil. I've chosen you, but one of you is a, is, is a devil. Jesus always telling them the straight truth. I want to encourage you to bring your imagination to Scripture. And I also want to encourage you to do it with humility. Faithful readers of the Bible read and reread and imagine the scenes of Scripture in all sorts of ways. And so I like to imagine when Peter says, where can we go? It could sound like, You have the keys to the car, so I guess we're all riding back with you. To his credit, though, he says it much better than that. You have the words of eternal life. It's interesting to me as I picture the scene that that Jesus doesn't say, that's right, I am, and create this like moment of bonding, like, all right, guys, let's go. But instead replies rhetorically, have I not chosen you, but one of you is a devil? Ouch. Small aside, this is also when I I get the thought that the Bible must be true, because who would have written such a thing? I mean, that's how John ends this scene. And then the next chapter, by the way, they they go to a feast. I mean, there's so much happening here. I run through various scenes in in, in my mind as I'm reading uh, the Bible, because it connects me with the humanity on that page. I mean, this feels very authentic to me. It feels gritty and real. And yes, some moments are epic, but some are kind of strange, even anticlimactic, at least for now. Truth be told, this is absolutely one of my favorite accounts in all the Bible. Because it starts off with the feeding of the 5,000, and then there's, there's walking on the water to the other side of the lake, and then the I am the bread of life sermon, and everybody leaves. And what I love so much about it is, is it's such a contrast to, to the way that I see the world or what I see in the world. You see, our world teaches us to do just about whatever you need to do to keep the audience, to keep the customer, to maximize the opportunity, ethically, of course. 
Now, if we were consultants to Jesus, we'd, we'd say, don't lose these people. We have thousands of satisfied seekers. And let's reframe this kind of confusing message you got of I'm the bread of life and just tweak it to a different message. Like, we can get you some really great heavenly bread. I, I can picture like another consultant like entering in, like a second guy, like, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll brand it. Um, Rabbi Rye or Lord of Loaves or Heavenly Harvest. Oh, we need a number, Godly Golden Grain 7. Or something like that. Isn't that how they talk? Thankfully, Jesus doesn't do any of that. And his willingness to speak the truth at the risk of losing his audience is compelling. Because it's not how the world works. And it's how I wish it would work. One that was truthful. One that was honest. One that was for me. And here Jesus is preaching truth no matter the cost. So they're coming to Jesus with that. And, and, and they're coming to Jesus saying, we want more bread, more signs. What else do you got that might interest us? But it has to fit our current trajectory of life. And Jesus keeps saying, you are asking for the wrong things. Let me show you the better thing. And what Jesus is challenging us with is the life that we think we want versus the fulfilling life that he wants us to receive in faith. So as we reflect on this, I am the bread of life statement, we can see three truths at work. One is because Jesus is the bread of life, we can receive his provision. I mean, throughout the scripture, time and time again, we are invited to see the truth that God provides. When he says, I am the bread, I am the source of life. Because Jesus is the bread of life, Second, we can also receive his power. And so this goes beyond basic provisions. The bread that satisfies is about power for the spirit, gifts for the soul. I mean, think about the love of God, the peace of God, the strength and the courage of God, the hope of God. This is the proclamation of the kingdom of God, the way of Jesus. That's power. And because Jesus is the bread of life, we can receive his presence. And please, don't just think about things, but instead see this as an invitation to experience the presence of God. This is relationship. This is communion with God. This is life with God. It's beyond our understanding of bread, yes. And Jesus uses these I am metaphors as a starting point to get us to think bigger, but also deeper. And in both a cosmic, but also a personal way. In that gritty real, but also that redemptively hopeful. I want to get back to that opening story of Onodo, that Japanese soldier who wouldn't stop fighting the war. I never finished the story of how did they ever get him to stop? They had to actually go and find that one commanding officer to give him a new command, to give him a new truth. To invite him into a new reality. This was literally the only person that he would trust. And just as Onodo received and obeyed the commander's first order, he received and obeyed the following one. And maybe you feel like you're out there fighting in the jungles of life on your own. You're an honorable person. You're looking for more. And you're tired. 
The years have taken a toll on your body and on your mind. And there are all these competing narratives telling you what to do. Do this, buy that, think like that, change that. And you don't believe any of them. I appreciate that. I'd like to encourage you to consider and meditate on the greatest person that we can all trust, on Jesus. You can trust Jesus, who wants to save you and me from the old wars of our lives and invite us into this brilliant and beautiful life-giving kingdom of God reality. Because Jesus is the bread of life, we can live in a better reality now and forever. Like we have in previous weeks, we're going to finish with a song of reflection. And so friends, I I invite you, may you reflect on the bread of life that Jesus is inviting you to. It's one of provision, it's one of power, and it's of Jesus' presence. Amen and amen. When I'm lost, when I'm searching, when I'm hungry, when I'm yearning, when I feel up on things that are temporary, I'm still empty. When I'm desperate, when I'm
Allah. 